You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2012. Today's episode is titled, Working in the Name of Christ. In the movie The Patriot, there was a scene where British General Cornwallis held one of his subordinates, Colonel Tavington, accountable for his actions. Colonel Tavington engaged in brutal tactics against women and children. He viewed such tactics as necessary for him to win battles. Tavington's defense was pragmatic. The end justified the means. General Cornwallis believed in civilized rules of war and therefore he did not accept a pragmatic justification for Tavington's brutality. Develop a culture in your organization focused on learning and practicing a biblical worldview of work. This is the only correct worldview and the only worldview that is consistent with Christ. Everyone in the organization needs to be challenged to learn and grow in a biblical worldview of work. Anyone who does not engage in the organization's culture must be released. Remember, the mandate of business is first and foremost to reflect Christ and secondarily to make money. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Working in the Name of Christ. Well, good afternoon. Everybody have a good lunch. Everybody's content. That's good. Um, You know, we talked about choice this morning. Would you guys like a choice about what we're going to talk about? We'll keep it within the framework of discipling nations and experiencing transformation. That's our overarching theme. Okay. But we can talk. I think my actual official topic was uh, strategic planning and the challenge of doing it. That was the official topic. But we can do other things if you want. Um, We can have a little fun with how Jesus interacted with the marketplace if you wanted to. Or uh, we could talk about this stamp. Okay? Some of you know what this stamp is. Some of you have no clue what it is. So you want to vote. You want to exercise your power of choice. Okay? So option one is strategic planning, the challenge of doing it. Option two is Jesus having fun in the marketplace. Option three is the stamp. Okay? Those are your options. Can we have a little of each? <laughs> I don't think there's time for a little of each. But yeah, I could do a little of each. How much pressure were you exert on us in choosing one or the other? Huh? How much pressure were you No pressure. There's no pressure. I mean, I'm giving you choice. Free choice. How can we make a free choice in ignorance about this stamp? If we're prophetic, we would know. Huh? Some of you at the Transform, you know what the stamp is. Okay? All right, so option one. Who all wants option one? Okay? Is this going to be like the Democratic Convention? <laughs> Who wants option two? Uh, that's tough. Option three. I want to know what that stamp is. <laughs> No. <laughs> this stamp, uh, this stamp means a lot to those that have it because it reminds them of what work is really all about. Okay, this thing reminds you of what a biblical worldview of work really is. That's what it's for. Okay, so the chair had a hard time there. <laughs> 
I saw basically the same for all three. So uh, what we, we could do like the Democrats. We could do it again. <laughs> Another vote. We, we could we could do it. We we could have you say, you know, say what do they say? I is that what they say, Paul? I is that the word I? So all of those who want option one, say I. I. That's pretty good. All those want option two. Aye. And option three. Aye. Man. Aye. Some of you voted twice. Okay. Well, in the opinion of the chair, I guess I'm going to do the stamp. I'm going to do the stamp. Doing this for Ted. Where's Ted? There you go. Ted requested one of these, so I'm going to give this to him as a present at the end. But I will let you guys enjoy something of the story behind the stamp. Um, we're going to look at the book of Colossians. And I know you guys are accomplished uh, Bible students, uh, many of you good Bible teachers and good preachers in your own right. So I'm not going to make any attempt to teach this other than just point things out to you and kind of walk you through Paul's argument here. And what I see in the book of Colossians is Paul is demonstrating something that's taught in the business leadership school. And that is spiritual reality drives physical reality. Spiritual reality drives physical reality. Um, I guess we don't have a whiteboard, do we? Uh, okay, we do. Okay, all right, that works. We can make that work. Uh, I want to just draw you some little little diagram to kind of show you how, in my judgment, it works. This is my my approach on it. But basically, um, we all live in a universe that God created. I think everybody would agree on that. And we all are underneath a reality. It's called, in the beginning, God. There's nothing prior to in the beginning for us. There's nothing outside of in the beginning. Everything starts then with theology. The character and nature of God. That's the foundational thinking that we all have to come to grips with. If we don't, if we try to live outside of that, we live in deception. We live in delusion. Maybe you ought to turn it like that. Don't we want? That sounds colorful. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, we'll just work around that, I guess. Will it slide up? Yeah, yeah. they slide up. Okay. Will it rotate? Will it do that? It's all it does to slide up. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, now some of you are aware that I have, I'm a business consultant, and uh, one of the things I do with uh, a number of my clients is I have, I have a monthly meeting with them, and we have been working for several years now on trying to understand in the beginning God and what that means for business. So one of the exercises that we do is an exercise where we look at physical reality and we try to trace that to underlying theology. Because we know if we're good students, we ought to be able to see that connection. And so the book of Colossians paints the picture for us of how this works. So I just want to kind of walk you through some high points of the book. 
And if we have a marker, I'll show you the little, little diagram that we use here. In fact, I'll just tell you the diagram, whether we have the marker or not. Basically, we start with theology. Everything begins with theology. And that is who God is. What scripture reveals about God and how he works. From that, we get philosophy. The definition of philosophy is how to live well in this universe. Philosophy literally means, it's a compound word, it literally means a word of wisdom. And just a couple of definitions here for you. These, these came from Dr. Bruce Walke. Does anybody know Dr. Walke? You don't know him? Uh, one of the leading Old Testament scholars of today. Jim Hodges would agree with that. He is a man that I sat under a number of years ago. I had a privilege of uh, learning a lot about the Old Testament for him. He taught me uh, the Psalms and the Proverbs. He's got a great two-volume book on the, on the Proverbs. And in that teaching, uh, he defined knowledge and wisdom. Thank you, Terry. Um, knowledge is an understanding of how God's universe works. That's a pretty simple definition. Don't you agree? Wisdom is the skill now to use that knowledge to make wise choices in God's universe. So if you're going to live well in God's universe, you've got to live according to His will and to His ways. So basically the, the model goes something like this. You start out with theology. Okay. And y'all, theta stands for God. Okay. And that leads to your philosophy. Okay. Now your philosophy in life, we're Christians. Christianity is a philosophy. Judaism is a philosophy. You know, Marxism is a philosophy. Humanism is a philosophy. Okay, all these are different philosophies. They're all rooted in a view of God. Okay, so our philosophy, of course, is Christianity. Christianity then defines a value system. Now, people seem to get confused on values, but we're going to see in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul is not confused on values. He understands values quite well. Values are short statements, usually one word, no more than two words, of things that are important in your philosophy. Like honesty, integrity, truth, love, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, you know, those kinds of things. Those are, those are value statements. And values now are expressed in principles. The principles are statements of how we live based on our values, which are based on our philosophy, which is based on our theology. Okay. Then principles have to be expressed, and they're expressed in practices. And practices then lead to results. So this is the tangible reality results, and this, it all begins with God. Everybody agrees God's a spirit being? Okay, so we have a spirit being that we know as God, who is the creator of this physical universe, and then he is the one that, that drives the results based on our proper understanding of God. So a maxim is this. For good results to occur, you have to have good theology expressing itself through sound philosophy, values, principles, and practices. That leads to good results. 
Bad results happen when you have bad theology at work, leading to bad philosophy, bad value, bad principles, bad practices, then bad results. So you see, you get this wrong, the theology wrong, everything falls apart. So that's what I think I see here in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, we have basically the presentation of God. And you all know what I'm referring to, don't you? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I'm reading starting in verse 15 of chapter 1. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and through Him and for Him. In other words, He's the source. He's the means. He's the ultimate end. That's a pretty comprehensive statement, isn't it? I mean, you see some really incredible theology here. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, being trained as a scientist, every time I read that text, it makes me think of the strong force. You know, in physics, there are four, four basic forces as we know it today. By the way, I do not think that we necessarily have a handle on the real essence of physics yet. We have a theory. And the theory says there's four basic forces. The strong force is the force that holds the nucleus of atoms together. Now, even if you've only had very elementary physics, you know this, that positives repel, like charges repel, and unlike charges attract. You know that, don't you? Okay? You all, you all know that, okay? So in a nucleus of a, of a typical molecule, other than hydrogen, you've got multiple protons. You know, protons are positively charged. Why does that nucleus stay together? It's called the strong force. That's what the physicists call the strong force because they don't really know what it is. They don't understand it. They just know it works. See? But we. Yeah. Good old Luke. But here we have the statement that Christ holds all things together. So it's interesting, too, that in, in some of the literature that, that uh, some of the scientists have even acknowledged that there's something mysterious about what's holding the nucleus of atoms together, molecules together. But you realize without that force, there is no physical reality because everything blows apart. We wouldn't exist. That force is absolutely essential for our existence. So I, I believe that strong force is a testimony to the work of Christ sustaining his universe. And I don't know all about his physical mechanisms. I believe he uses physical mechanisms. He uses us to accomplish his purpose. Have you, have you ever wondered why he would use us? I mean, why, why doesn't he just bypass us and just take care of whatever he wants to take care of directly? I mean, wouldn't that be a lot more effective? I mean, he'd get it done a lot faster, and it'd be done right. But working through us, it's just like we're a bunch of clowns sometimes, fumbling along. We don't know what we're doing. You know, it's always funny to, to hear analysis of past movements of God. And you, you look at them, and, you, and you, they usually didn't work out very well. And you say, well, what happened there? You know, well, there was some good there, and then there was some bad. And, you know, how did all that happen? Well, it started out so good with such good intentions, but it just didn't work. Well, God could bypass all those failures and just solve everything. He could get everybody saved. He could fix all the problems. He chooses not to do that. That's his sovereign choice. So guess what? We are part of his plan. We each play a part. So 
it's a, it's a great, it's a great blessing for us because now we get the opportunity to mature and grow and be part of what God is about. So going on in verse 18, and he, referring to Christ, is the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You don't think about Christ's work being efficacious for heaven, do you? That's what it says, though. It's efficacious not only for this existence, but for whatever heaven is, whatever's going on up there, you know, there's something up there that had to be dealt with through the cross as well. So this is some powerful theology. The revelation of who God is. Okay, so that's what I think chapter 1 here is a rich expression of that. Now let's go on to chapter 2, because now we want to see something about the philosophy because, see, philosophy flows out of theology. Now, I think this, I always am fascinated by this book, because this book appears to have been um, a book that was written by Paul to his spiritual grandchildren. You ever thought about that? Spiritual grandchildren? You got any spiritual grandchildren? Well, apparently Epaphras was part of the discipleship group that Paul had in Ephesus some years before. We know there were 12 men. They had originally been discipled by Apollos, and they met together with Paul for two years. And every day, every day for two years. Can you imagine what kind of seminary that was? Meet with the Apostle Paul every day for two years. I, it appears that Epaphras was part of that group. Prior to that, that time, Paul had not been allowed to go anywhere in Asia except Ephesus. But what it says at the end of that discipleship process for those 12 men, they were so infected with Jesus, it says then that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Which gives you a clue, if you want to evangelize, disciple. Discipleship led to the great evangelism of Asia. So Epaphras was apparently one of the men that was part of that group. And I say apparently because we don't know that for sure, but it appears that he may have been. And so Paul now is writing to his grandchildren. Since he, he's the spiritual father of Epaphras, Epaphras gave birth to this church, and now they're his grandchildren. Okay, he says, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for all those in Laodicea. Laodicea is a sister city. And for all who have not met me personally. He hadn't met his grandchildren. They've just heard about him. He's heard about them. The reason he's heard about them is because Epaphras right now, when he's writing this book, is apparently with Paul in Rome. He says this. Oh, just, just one, one point here. Notice the word contending. How hard I'm contending for you. A little clue about discipleship. Discipleship is a contending process. In fact, we're going to see in chapter 4, it's actually like a wrestling match. We'll see that at the end, but let's go on here. He says, my goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may know the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Philosophy is all about taking the knowledge of how God's creation works and using it wisely to live well. Christ is the center. 
It's Grand Central Station, as Dennis has been saying. It's the starting point for sound philosophy. So this is now a chapter dealing with philosophy. Now let's go on to chapter 3. Now in chapter 3, we're going to start dealing with values and principles. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. This is chapter 3, verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, he's going to tell you something about his value system. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the way you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to one another since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew or Greek circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So he keeps going back to his theology and philosophy here as he's getting ready to lay out these values. Now he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In other words, the supreme value is love. Now, let's just be very clear here. This is the word, the Greek word agape. And I'm sure all of you know this, so I'm just reminding you. Love, in the Greek language, is not an emotion. At least agape love is not an emotion. Agape love refers to sacrificial living. It's when I do what's in your highest good, no matter what the cost is to me. When I tell you the truth, even it puts our friendship online. When I sacrifice to help you line up with the will and ways of God. This is what love looks like. Love, love to us in, in our current culture is an emotion. That's what most people think. They talk about they, they fell into love and so they got married. My wife and I have been married 43 years. And I think we've learned a little bit about what love is. And I think I can say with fairly high level of certainty that people don't marry out of love. Not biblical love. They marry out of a neurotic attraction. A neurotic attraction means my neurosis matched her neurosis at that point in time <laughs> when we married. Okay? Then when we came together, we had an opportunity to learn to love. Now, those of you who have married a while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you know, from there, it got more challenging. You, you started learning about each other. And my wife still surprises me. I never know quite what's going to happen next. But the beautiful thing is we grew together. And we learned to love each other. That's what real love is. 
is when you begin to sacrifice to serve God's purposes in that person. You know, there are only two fundamental questions in life. You can reduce everything to these two fundamental questions. And as a scientist, I'm kind of a reductionist. I like to get down to the basics. You know, I'm very sympathetic to the theory that there is one force to explain everything. You know, scientists have been trying for 100 years to come up with that holy grail of what is that one force, that one theory that will explain everything. I think it's Christ. I think someday scientists are going to see that. Right now, we can't see it. Well, the two fundamental questions in life to me are this. Whose will and whose ways? That's it. Whose will and whose ways? We're each born in this creation in a state that theologians called depraved. Meaning our nature is fundamentally the nature of Adam and Eve, which is a nature bent on sinning. We do not have the freedom in and of ourselves to choose righteousness. We are, we are infected with this sin nature and we have really no choice but to sin. Now that's, that's a challenging thing for us. So we come in here and the natural bias is my will and my ways. I keep thinking that my grandsons are going to be exceptions. <laughs> and they keep disappointing me. Because they reveal what's in me is in them. Thought, oh, I'm so sorry, man. I didn't mean to do that to you, but that's the way it works. So, whose will and whose ways is the foundational question. Our bias coming in is our will and our ways. The only way we live according to God's will and God's ways is through transformation. We have to experience transformation. We need to be discipled in the transformation. Okay, and somebody discipling us needs to express the highest of all virtues, which is love. And love has all these subsets of virtues that we've just been reading about here. You know, we read through, uh, uh, starting in verse 12, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, compassion, forgiving one another, all of these things. And all of them are bound together in perfect unity through agape love. So that's the highest of all values. Now, going on to verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. More virtues. Peace and thankfulness. Let the message of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach another virtue, admonishing one another. That's a virtue. Admonition. We don't like that, do we? We just want to get along, don't we? We don't want to be unkind to each other. We don't want to be too, maybe I shouldn't go there with you. I wouldn't want to hurt your feelings. You know, we're, we're hypersensitive about this because our culture is all about everybody feeling good. We've got to know that if you're going to grow up, you've got to do what Dennis has told us for years. You've got to stand in the pain of the question. And sometimes it's painful. Admonish one another through, with, with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs with spirits singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Now here's the stamp verse. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now this, I think, is the seminal principle of the book. 
Now let's look at this verse and see what it says. Whatever you do does not mean you can do whatever you want to do. Okay, that's not the sense. He's, he's, he's not giving you permission to go redefine your life. God has a, a plan for you. He's created you for a purpose. And he's speaking to a broad audience and said, whatever it is that God has called you to do, then this is the way you do it. And he points out, he, he, he expands on this a little bit. He says, whether in word or deed. Now, this is, again, the English is, translation is not great here. The word word there is logos. We're familiar with that word. That, that, that logos refers to Christ. It refers to speaking words that are consistent with Christ and who he is. But that word deed there is the Greek word ergon. The ergon is the word for all kinds of work. It doesn't matter what you do, it would be your ergon. If you're a bricklayer, it's your ergon. If you're a merchant, it's your ergon. If you're a farmer, it's your ergon. If you're a banker, it's your ergon. Whatever it is you do, it's your ergon. So it's not, the word deed is a very weak translation. It makes you think that you're a Boy Scout helping a little old lady across the street. You know, that's a good deed to us. No, he's talking about work. Whatever it is that comes out of your mouth, and by the way, the mouth reveals what? The heart. So whatever's coming out of your heart through your mouth, and whatever it is that you do, the work that you do, the work that you've been called to do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So when you are working, no matter what your work assignment here is, everybody here works. It doesn't matter who you are, you work. See, we've, we've turned work into kind of like a, a separate category of reality. It's not. You, we are created to work. That's what the, the creation mandate says. God has put us here to rule. We're here. We're rulers. We're here to project the rule and reign of God to do His will according to His ways in this universe. So we are fundamentally workers. So wherever you're assigned, whatever your assignment is, you're to go and bring the rule and reign of God. So that's your ergon. So as you begin to do that, He says, I want you to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. When you do something in someone's name, if Dennis were to ask you to go and do something in his name, what is he asking you to do? To represent him. To reflect me. To do it the way I would do it. Is that not correct? Would you agree? So wouldn't that be the sense of it here? You represent Christ at work. Now one of the sad things that's going on in what we call the marketplace movement today at least it appears to me it's kind of sad. It's my perspective, and I could be wrong on this. But what it seems to be happening is the focus on many is the marketplace has value only to the extent that you can have relationships in it. Now, we want to have relationships, but God created this physical universe and declared it good, which means he values it. So if he values it, he values those he's created to work it. To rule it for him, which suggests he values work product. He doesn't just value relationships. He values relationships, but not only relationships, he values also what you actually do. He values it when you produce something with excellence, when you produce something that reflects Christ. Now let me just give you a, a picture of, of this reality. Have you ever noticed how Jesus gathered his 12 disciples? 
you ever paid attention to those, those texts? Like in Luke 5, for example, is one, one story. Well, it's very interesting to look at that because what you see, for example, in Luke 5 is Jesus has a, has a meeting. It must have been an impromptu meeting early one morning. And there's these fishermen there, and they've been, uh, they've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. They're tired. The boats, are, you know, they've landed their boats, and now they're cleaning their nets. Now, I'm not a fisherman. I don't know why you have to clean nets when you've had nets and water. Seems to me nets would already be clean, but apparently they're not. they got to clean the nets. So they're cleaning the nets, and Jesus is there. Now, can you imagine Jesus showing up at your place of business? It's been a long night. You've caught nothing. I mean, it's been a Zippo night. Made no money last night. You know, we're tired, and here comes Jesus. And he's got these people. And then he wants... He wants to use some of your assets. He wants your boat. Would you? I'm going to sit in your boat. Would you launch me out a little bit from the shore? Oh, okay. All right. Launch him out. Let me know when you finish. We'll go back over and finish cleaning the nets. So he, he gets through speaking to the people. And then he says, hey, launch me out. To the, come on, we're going to go out and go for a catch. Now, here's Peter saying, are you kidding me? I'm a professional fisherman. You're just a carpenter. You know, I'm telling you, we didn't catch anything. But it's you. It's you. So they launch out in the deep, and now they they catch fish so many they can't hardly pull them up on the boat. So they, they signal for, for James and John. To, hey, they had a partnership. I don't know if you knew that, but they had a partnership. James and John, come help us. So now they fill two boats full of fish. They, they're almost sinking. And what, is, what does Peter say? Now, what would you say to a found prophet like that? Hey, let's do it again. Get these on board, and let's go do this again. This is, this is cool. Maybe we won't have to fish tonight. We'll have enough for two or three nights. No, he didn't say that. He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinner. And then Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish, be a fisherman of men. Now, if you're dualistic... You would, you would assume, well, that means that working in the ministry is more important than fishing. But if you look at the end of, the life, of, of uh, Jesus' life three years later, what, where did you find Peter and James and John three years later? They're fishing again. They never left fishing. They had a, what the military is called TDY. Who knows what TDY is? Temporary duty. Had a little temporary duty, temporary assignment here, but they still were fishermen fundamentally. You see, they, they had an encounter with Jesus. Now tell me this. When Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men, it said they left their business, all of their assets, their families, everything instantly. Now, would we do that? If Jesus showed up at our place of business and we'd had a rough night and he came in and did something like he did for them and all of a sudden, wow, you know, found profit. What would we do? Well, most likely, uh, we would probably you know, be a little bit of a shock at this. And then if he said, I want you to leave everything and follow me, we'd probably have to say, well, we need to pray about this. I need to call my pastor. You know, I need to go check this and talk to my wife. That's the kind of things we'd do. And, and those are not bad. The question is, why did they instantly respond to him without any hesitation? You ever thought about that? Well, let me suggest something to you. Jesus grew up 30 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. 
He was a carpenter. These fishermen had wood boats. Now, do you think there might have been a connection there? Maybe Jesus made those boats. Maybe Jesus repaired those boats. Maybe they had a chance to see what really excellence in carpentry was. Have you ever seen somebody's really excellent something? I mean, really, really good. I mean, everybody instantly respects them. They have credibility, trust. Well, I think that's what Jesus had in place there. Such excellent work that everybody trusted him. So whenever he said something, it was a no-brainer. Yeah, we're doing it. We're there. I think that's a picture of what it is to work in the name of Jesus, to be that excellent at what you're called to do. So it does not matter what's going on. People are going to look at you and say, wow, this person is really good. Whatever they say, I believe them. I trust them. I would, you know, there's nothing greater than to say somebody, you'd say you'd trust all your assets to somebody. That means somebody is really outstanding. I think that's the level that we're trying to get to here. What this stamp is all about, um, several years ago I, when I was teaching on this text in a seminar to my clients, I got this idea, you know, my clients needed something on their desk to remind them of this reality. So I, I made this stamp, and this stamp says, this work performed in the name of the Lord Jesus, and it's got this text here on it, and you can use it as a stamp. Get an ink pad, stamp it, and stamps it out. I've got clients that do that. I've got a client that's, uh, that works as a handyman, and he, um, he, he's, he, he's developed a great reputation. He's, uh, he's on Angie's List. Those of you who are familiar with Angie's List know you can't put yourself on Angie's List. You know, you have to be put on Angie's List. So he's been put on Angie's List. And he has an excellent rating. For several years, he was the top service provider in his category. Finally, he got a complaint. One complaint. As far as I know, he's only had one complaint. That complaint came from someone who was offended that when he got through with his call, he asked to pray for them. That person thought that was unprofessional. I told my friend, I said, you don't have any complaints. That's not a complaint. That's just flat ignorant. <laughs> when you, and by the way, what he does is he takes this stamp and he, he fills out his invoice in his trucks and he stamps this right on those invoices. This work performed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, can you imagine that put yourself in that shoe? Doing your work with that level of excellence. For you, your work reflects Christ. Not just the relationships, which that's, that should be true. Not just your conversations, that should be true. But the work itself, what you actually do. Whatever that is. And how you do it. When you do it. With whom you do it. Where you do it. All aspects of the work should reflect Christ. Now that to me is the driving principle that comes from true love. That leads you to doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, real quickly, moving on here. Um, verse 18, now we have, the, we have the beginning of practices. Verse 17 is the principles, now we're going to have the practices. It starts with the wives. 
fitting. I think it's good. It starts with the wives. I always try to put my wife first, so I think she ought to have the first practice. Okay, so I tell her this, and she's very quick to point out that, that I have the second one. And hers is not as hard as mine, and she's probably correct. She says, my, all i got to do is submit, you've got to love, which means you get to die. I learned a long time ago not to tell my wife, you, you need to submit to me, because she immediately says, you need to die. Okay. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. You see, part of what a wife has got to come to is an understanding that no matter how dysfunctional her husband is, that is her husband. Sovereignly given to her for God's purposes. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And again, husbands have to know that sovereignly God has placed them in that relationship with that woman to be their wife. And you love them unconditionally. You love them sacrificially. Let me, how, many, how many of you hire people? Where we hire people? Let me give you a tip for hiring. <clears throat> Do you believe that it's important for the people you hire to be able to pray? To pray effectively. You think that's important? Huh? You think so? <clears throat> We're in a physical world that was created by this spirit being called God. Okay? And ultimately, he's sovereign over his universe. Personally, if I want to hire people, I want people that are praying people, that are tuned in to, to God and hearing him and discerning what he's saying, where he's directing. Okay, now, one of the ways that you know somebody is not hearing God is if they have an unhealthy marriage. Yeah, this is an ouch. Somebody said, uh, ouch, hallelujah. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Well with your wife according to knowledge, as heirs together of the grace of life, this referring to the husbands, so that your prayers will not be hindered. There's a penalty when we men don't dwell with our wives according to knowledge. We're penalized. We're penalizing ourselves. You understand that? We penalize ourselves because now our prayer life is hindered. And now we can't be as effective in any part of life, including work. Is that a new thought to you? I mean, you, you hire people, is that a new thought to you? It is a new thought. In it. It's a new thought to most people. Well, did you know there are some people that may not know the Lord that actually kind of figured this out? There's one that, that you know of. You guys know Ross Perot? Ever heard of Ross Perot? Okay. Well, I don't know what his spiritual condition is, but several years ago I had an occasion to have lunch with one of his former executives. And this man had uh, come to an understanding that the scriptures had a lot to say about business, and he was curious to know more. So I was sharing with him some of the things that I had learned in my journey with Dennis and studying a biblical worldview of work. And so we got to this point uh, where we're talking about you know, prayer and things like that. And he kind of perked up at one point. Because we were talking about the role of sin. He said, you know, Ross had a policy. I said, what was that policy? He said, if he found out that anyone, anyone in his organization committed adultery, he fired him on the spot. There was no recourse. You got fired. And his rationale was this. If you will betray your wife, you will betray me. 
I thought, wow. For a man that may not know the Lord, that's pretty sound spiritual thinking. He recognizes the reality. What you do in one area of life, you're going to do in other areas of life. Okay, moving on. Children, there's a mandate here for children. Obey your parents. How much time do I have? Okay. All right. We're going to skip the rest. We'll go down to slaves, verse 22. This is the commonly what most people you know, focus on when they're thinking about work, um, which this is important. Slaves obey your earthly masters in everything. Remember, slaves are the ones that did the work in the Roman Empire. Roman citizens did not work. The only people that worked were the slaves. So he's talking to the workers. Workers, I'm going I'm to say workers because that's the essence of it. Obey your earthly masters in everything and do not only do it with their eyes on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence of, of the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. So you can see a very strong admonition here to what it means to work in the name of the Lord Jesus, which means largely be submitted to your boss no matter what, even if he's dysfunctional. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that there, we have a call from God to submit to authority that's dysfunctional. Most of us don't like that call, but that's a reality. Okay, let's go to chapter 4 very quickly. I just want to point out a couple of things to you. So we've, we've, we've seen a principle here in chapter 3, verse 17. The, we just went through some of these practices that are the expression of love, which is the highest value. And now what are the results that you get? Well, the results you get are beginning to be expressed in chapter, chapter 4 here. You see, for example, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so we may proclaim the mystery of God for which I am in chains. You have a message, a logos of God in you that God has put in you that he will use in whatever assignment he has for you. Notice what it says about those with this message. Pray that... I'm going, to, I'm going to change this because I, th I think this is legitimate. Pray that you may proclaim your message clearly, as you should. Be wise in the way you conduct yourselves toward outsiders, outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, you know, if the Lord were to open a door for you, would you think that would be enough? If you're praying for something and the Lord opens the door, is that enough? For most of us, it would be. We're praying, Lord, open this door. But here, notice he says, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. It's not enough to have an open door. You've got to be, you've got to be able to deliver it, whatever it is that God's called you to deliver. Okay, one last point. The result of living out... Sound theology is sound living. Now, I want to show you how the spiritual father of this congregation, how he interacts and labors for this congregation. Uh, if you'll go down to verse 12 of chapter 4, and I'm sorry we don't have time to set up all the context here. Epaphras, who is the spiritual father, 
who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I think we see here the essence of what healthy prayer looks like. Today, we, we live in a time where, you know, we pray prayers that tickle people's itches. You know, they, they don't have money or they don't think they have money, so they, they want prayer for money. Or they don't have work, so they want prayer for work. Or they got a bad situation, so they want prayer for that. And we tend to tickle that itch. But I want you to look at what Epaphras, the spiritual father, did. First of all, he wrestled in prayer. You ever wrestled in prayer over someone? I mean, really wrestled? Really agonized? Really labored in prayer? And the purpose is not so that he could tickle their itch. It's so that they would stand firm in all the will of God. Mature. That word mature means complete. Accomplishing your purpose. That's what the sense of it is. And fully assured. You see, I think this is what prayer really is. We, freak, we, have, we have prayer here on, on Sunday mornings at, at this church. I think it's one of the great things we do. And we have good participation. I've seen other churches try to copy what we do, and it's not gone off very well. I'm not sure exactly why that is, but we have a congregation that responds to that. They come forward and they get prayer. And so what I always try to do is when they come to me is I'm very eager to hear their prayer request. And I will, I will pray for that, mostly. Sometimes I don't. Depends on what it is. But try to. But more importantly, I want to pray for their maturity. I want to pray for transformed hearts. I want to pray for alignment with the will and ways of God. That's, that's what is a New Testament prayer looks like. So this is, this, is where, this is the result of knowing Christ and building your philosophy on Him and a value system rooted in love and principles where now you are all about doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and practices that reflect Christ. Therefore, the results then are all about Christ being formed in you to accomplish what it is that God wants to do in and through you. This stamp, which I give to my clients, is a reminder to them of, this, of these principles here. Specifically, this one right here, the principle of doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter what you do. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus as his representative. And may we all have grace to learn to live at that level in Jesus' name. 